Well, a few weeks ago, uh, the preaching schedule was adjusted. There were some uh, puzzle pieces that needed to be put together. And as uh, Dan and I did that, uh, I was given this week to preach, uh, which I was excited about. Uh, but I didn't have a topic. And so when, I, uh, when I'm on the preaching calendar, I love it, but I like to have the topic assigned so that I don't have... Because how, do how do you pick, right? You got this whole book, and when you have the freedom to preach anything, it's overwhelming. So, uh, as I thought about it, I was sitting at my kitchen table one morning after breakfast, and I thought, I know, I'll outsource the decision. So I said to my kids, I said, hey guys, uh, Daddy gets to preach the sermon here in a couple weeks. I get to come up on stage and tell people about Jesus, and so uh, what should I talk about? And one of them piped up and said, Noah's Ark! Uh, and then we started talking a little more, and we settled on their favorite story, the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. We read this story with them dozens of times in uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, which I would highly recommend to you. If you haven't checked out that resource, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but we've read the story dozens of times. It's a family favorite. And so uh, for no other reason than it's my kid's favorite story in the Old Testament, this morning we're opening up David, Goliath, David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. David and Goliath is perhaps one of the 10 most recognized uh, stories in the whole Bible for Christians and non-Christians alike, right? For those who grew up in the church, uh, you no doubt had interaction after interaction and exposure after exposure to this story uh, in your Sunday school classes. And for those who didn't grow up in the church, surely you've heard this story referenced countless times in pop culture, right? And music and TV and in movies, especially in the sports world. When one opponent matches up and it's like this big overmatch, right? It's a real David and Goliath matchup. Well, maybe that's all true, but you've never heard David and Goliath preached from the pulpit and all of your impressions of it come from when you were a kid or what you've seen on TV. But this morning, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel 17 and hear the story of David and Goliath. So that's on page 247 in the Worship Center Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to pull that out and follow along. Otherwise, uh, the Church Center app has the notes and text in there or whatever Bible you have with is just fine. If you're not in the habit of bringing a Bible with you, I'd highly encourage you to do so uh, so you can follow along in the text. If you don't know where it is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. If you hit Kings or Chronicles, you've gone too far. Before we read uh, pieces of that text this morning, let me give you a little background about what's going on as we enter into the story of David and Goliath. So when David was a boy, he was a shepherd in his father's fields, and Saul was Israel's king. Saul was not a great king, and sort of the last straw in his kingship was uh, his disobedience to a direct command from God to completely destroy all the people and livestock in a battle. Instead of destroying every person and animal that belonged to his enemies as God had commanded, Saul spared the king of the Amalekites and he kept the best livestock, presumably for himself. This was the proverbial nail in the coffin for Saul and the search for his replacement began. Enter Samuel. Samuel is God's servant and God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. He sends him to the house of Jesse uh, in Bethlehem where God makes it clear to the shock of the whole family that the youngest and smallest son, David, should be anointed as the next king over Israel rather than the oldest and strongest son. So you tracking that? Saul is king. He's a bad king. 
Samuel, God's servant, has been led by God and has now anointed David as the next king of Israel. Sometime later, uh, perhaps a few years, we're not exactly sure, but while Saul is still king over Israel, we come to our text for this morning, 1 Samuel 17, and the story of David and Goliath. As we work through, I'm just going to make a few observations about the text, and then we'll hit application at the end. So observation number one, Saul and the Israelites are cowards. We're going to mostly summarize this section of text, and then we'll dive into it more deeply in a little bit. The story of David and Goliath opens with kind of an intense situation. There are two armies, the Israelite army and the Philistine army, and they're both on either side of this big ravine, and they're gathered for battle. But with the Philistine army, there's this guy called Goliath, and he's a giant, and the text says that he stands nine feet, nine inches tall, and it describes all of his heavy bronze armor, and he's just this menace. He keeps coming out day after day, taunting the Israelite army and challenging any soldier to a one-on-one battle for all the marbles. Winner takes all. Right? If you guys, the Israelites, win, if your champion defeats me, then the Philistines will be your servants. But if I defeat your champion, you will serve us. Well, verse 11 says that the challenge of Goliath, Saul and all of Israel with him, hear his words and they lose their courage and are terrified. For context, Saul as king and military leader of Israel should have been the one to fight Goliath. In fact, it says that Saul is not only their king and military leader, but he's also a head higher than anyone else in the Israelite army. We read that elsewhere. He should have been the one to fight Goliath, but he didn't. His pattern of doubting God's faithfulness and making his own self-preserving decisions comes to a head in this confrontation and his cowardice and self-centeredness rears its ugly head. All of that in spite of the fact that the Israelite army had recently defeated this same Philistine group in a battle just a couple of chapters before. But here, with the army back in their faces and one giant man standing there taunting, the Israelites and Saul are shivering in their boots. The men that God had showed himself faithful to over and over and over again had completely forgotten who they represented and who had their backs, and they falter in the face of their enemy. Every day, for 40 days, this same thing happens. Goliath comes out, he taunts the Israelites, he throws down his challenge, and they all stand there on the other side, too afraid to move forward. Well, eventually, David shows up with some food for his older brothers. You know, those guys who were older and bigger and stronger and more kingly who thought maybe they should be on the throne. Well, while he's there, he's asking how his brothers are doing. And in verse 21 and following, David hears the challenge and he sees the response of the Israelite army. Again, in verse 24, it says they were terrified and retreated from Goliath. And he cannot believe it. Hear the disgust in his voice in verse 26. It says, David spoke to the men, that is the the Israelite army who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Observation number two. David trusts God and deeply desires his glory. See, David 
isn't afraid. He doesn't shrink back, right? David hears the words of Goliath challenging Israel, and he's disgusted that someone would be spitting in the face of God's armies, and he immediately moves to action. He asks, what will be done for the one who slays him? What's the benefit when I go and take care of this disgrace? The answer in verse 25 is a pretty good one. It says, previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man that is Goliath who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. It's a pretty good benefit, right? The king's daughter, wealth, and no taxes for his entire family. Those are life-changing benefits for any one of the young men in Israel's army. Shepherd families like that of David and his brothers were not all, all that wealthy, and it's very unlikely that they could afford more than a meager living and a meager lifestyle. And so if just one of David's seven brothers had stepped forward, they would have improved their family situation for generations to come. But for 40 days, none of them did. In fact, no one gathered at that encampment thought there was enough payout to make it worth the risk. And so they stood there, helpless and afraid and weak. So helpless and afraid and weak, in fact, that his eldest brother is immediately threatened by David's question and he gets angry. After all, he knows that if any of the brothers should step forward to slay this giant, it should be him. He's Jesse's oldest son. He should have, the been, should have been the one anointed king. He's the firstborn. He should be the one to provide for his family. And so in his insecurity and anger, he lashes out at his younger brother in verse 28. It says this, David's oldest brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men and he became angry with them, with him, that is David. Why did you come down here? He asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. How dare you show your face here, David? You're not going to do anything. You just, you just came to watch us fight. Why don't you go back and take care of your sheep? He's scared and he's insecure and he's a little panicked. Well, David, on the other hand, is not afraid. He's not insecure. He's not helpless. And he's certainly not weak in spite of his young age and small stature. After this interaction with his brother, David, go David boldly goes before King Saul in verse 32. And he declares to him, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him, that is Goliath. Your servant, me, David, will go fight this Philistine. See, in chapter 13, David is rightly identified as a man after God's own heart. David walked with his Lord. He talked with him as he tended the flocks in the fields. He trusted God as he pursued the lions and bears that threatened his weak and foolish sheep. David shares as much in verses 34 and 37. After he goes to Saul and he tells him, I'll go fight Goliath, Saul says, uh, you, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. You're just a kid. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David responds to Saul with this. He says, your servant, that is me, David, has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. 
Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. He tells uh, Saul some pretty insane things here, right? He says, I've grabbed lions and bears by the fur, I've struck them down, and I've killed them. It's pretty crazy, right? I don't know how many of you like to watch Animal Planet, but uh, maybe you've seen some clips of lions like attacking gazelles or whatever. I don't think that's a situation that you or I are probably going to jump into, grab the lion by the nape of the neck and pull it, right? We're just, we're just not going to do that. But, but David did. David boldly jump in, jumped in to save his sheep because he recognized in verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear now will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. God was with David in those fields, protecting him and empowering him and deepening his relationship with him. And so David is not afraid. Notice David's motivation in verse 36. He says, in verse 36, this, he says, your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He has defied the armies of the living God. Not, I'll be given a position of power. Not, I'll get your daughter and she'll be a great wife and all the guys will be jealous. Not, I'll be filthy rich if I do this. No, David is motivated to keep the name of God from being smeared in the mud. To defy God's people was to spit in the face of God himself and, and Goliath's whole goal was to prove to those watching that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, was a nobody who couldn't even protect his own armies. Well, David trusts that God will protect him in those fields and that he'll protect him as he'd done in those fields and that through David, God will defend his holy name. David is passionate about God's glory. Observation number three, David, God uses David to slay Goliath. David gives this speech and then Saul relents at the end of verse 37. He says, all right, well, go and may the Lord be with you. Saul then tries to dress David in all of his military garb and his kingly protective gear, but David can't do it. It's too big, it's too heavy, it's uncomfortable, it doesn't fit. David can't move freely in that stuff. And so he takes the protective armor off and he just wears his regular shepherding gear. And he goes to gather five stones from the river nearby. Let's pick it up in verse 40 and following. It says, instead, instead of putting on the, the kingly armor, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi, that's the river, and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts. David picks up his stones and he walks out onto the battlefield responding to the challenge of Goliath and Goliath is deeply offended. He can't believe that Israel thinks so little of him that they would send this cute little boy out to fight him. And so he curses him and he taunts him and he calls him forward just to get it over with, right? No doubt Goliath is enraged and he has pictures in his mind of slaying David and then going forward and taking out the whole Israelite 
army for sending out this young man as their champion. They defied him and they disrespected him, thinking there would be any hope that David would defeat him. I think if we're honest, uh, Israel and Saul were probably looking at each other thinking something similar, right? What did we just do? What are we, this is a little boy we just sent out here. This is it. It's all over. When David inevitably loses this fight, we're headed back with the Philistines to be their slaves. Inevitably, that, that's just what's going to happen. There's just no chance that David wins this, but, wins this battle. So Saul, you fool, why would you send him out to fight? And then David speaks. Read this with me, verses 45 to 47, and hear the proud defiance and confidence in David's voice. David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. At these words, Goliath rushes forward, as does David, who slings that stone, and it sinks right between Goliath's eyes. He cuts off his head and wins the battle. The Israelite army, experiencing a wild roller coaster of emotions, chases down the Philistine army, who can't believe that their champion has lost, and the, the roads are littered with bodies for miles as they try in vain to retreat. This weak shepherd boy has slain the overwhelming favorite, Goliath. It's pandemonium. So, what's this story all about? What do we do with the story of David and Goliath? Well, since my kids were the motivation for choosing this story, I thought I'd think about an application like this. What would I want my kids to learn from David and Goliath? What do I want my kids to know after they hear the story of David and Goliath? Well, first, I do not want them to learn, be like David and slay your giants. Not be like David and slay your giants. I said earlier that this is uh, one of the most recognized Bible stories of all time. I would also suggest to you that it is one of the most misapplied Bible stories of all time. So, what is this what isn't this story about? It's not a story about how you and I can be David and slay our own giants. Cultures and people and churches and authors and whoever love to take this story and replace David with their own name, making themselves the hero and their problems the giant. Right? Job interview coming up? Slay that giant. Test at school? Slay that giant. Anxiety? Fear? Just muster up enough faith in God and he will help you overcome whatever giant is facing you. And as he did for the Israelites, he'll lead you into the land of milk and honey. This is an application that is hugely popular with prosperity gospel preachers who tell their listeners, if you just muster up enough faith or if you just donate enough money or obey well enough or believe hard enough, then all your problems will disappear and your land of milk and honey will be an easy life with all the health and wealth you could ever dream of. Well, here's the problem with that application. It doesn't always or even often happen that way. Right? Certainly God can and does and has delivered us from sin. Absolutely. And Jesus walks with us through our struggles. That is absolutely true. Praise God that that happens. 
But what about when he doesn't fix our problems? What about when our spouse or our kids or our parents or our neighbors or our friends get sick and God doesn't heal them? What about when we experience crushing anxiety for our whole lives? What about when we struggle with the same temptation for years and years? If the application of this story is this, if it's be like David and slay your giants, then what happens when we can't? What happens when we can't? See, even, even though we're trying our hardest and believing our deepest, sometimes God sees fit to allow us to suffer for reasons that we may not understand this side of eternity. Philippians 1.29 says, tells us that it has been granted to you, us, on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Maybe you were here last Sunday night at the Voice of the Martyrs event and you heard about persecuted Christians around the world who've been called to suffer for Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, that is our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Throughout the ages and in the pages of Scripture, believers have rejoiced in and longed for the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Why? So that in our weakness, Christ might be glorified, and so that in our weakness, we might experience more of him, more of his tender touch in our lives, more of his love as he walks with us through difficulty. For sure, a day is coming when all of our problems will finally and fully be dealt with. The day that Jesus returns and ushers in his new kingdom fully. That's our blessed hope as followers of Jesus. And you as a believer should look forward to that day. You should long for that day when there will be no more shame and sorrow and suffering and tears. One day Jesus will fully reign on earth in victory over every single one of life's difficulties. But for now... Remember, the application of David and Goliath, the purpose is not for us to say, slay the giants in your life. Be like David and slay your giants. It's much, much greater than that. So if that's not the application, then what is? What would I want my kids to know? Well, first, we can be confident that God will be faithful to us today because he has been in the past. We can be confident that God will be faithful to us today because he has been In the past, David, this man after God's own heart, walked closely with his God in the fields as he tended to his literal flock of sheep, right? He communed with God, no doubt conversing with him all day as the sun beat down and he stared at those sheep and through the long nights as he listened for predators to come, he talked with God through all of those things. And God was with him in those fields and he empowered him to overtake lions and bears and to protect his flock. And so David was sure that when Goliath showed up defying God's name and God's people, that he would be with him again. Well, maybe you don't have a story of God empowering you to rip a sheep out of a lion's mouth. If you do, come find me after. Love to hear that story. But if you're a Christian, uh, you do have stories of God's faithfulness in your life. First and foremost, God has called you to himself as a loving and kind and merciful father. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are his adopted son or daughter. Think about that. Think about that. God chose you. God wants you. As a perfect father, right, all of the flaws of our earthly fathers are not present in God. As a perfect heavenly father, he's always there for you. He's always pursuing you. He always wants you. He's always drawing near to you. 
He's faithful and he's always present in your life. Beyond that, God, by his spirit, has shown himself faithful to you in ways that maybe you didn't recognize before, ways you might not expect. He's faithful to you by convicting you of sin. He's faithful by helping you fight against that sin. He's faithful by giving you a spiritual gift that you can use to build up his body. He's faithful by sanctifying you, by turning you more and more into the image of Jesus. Not only do we have personal stories of God's faithfulness in our own lives, but we see God at work in the lives of fellow, fellow believers uh, throughout the ages and today, right? We look back at the scriptures and we see how God was faithful to Israel over and over in spite of their deep disobedience. We see Jesus coming and walking with his disciples and continuing to pursue them and remaining faithful to them in spite of their disobedience. We read the testimonies of believers gone to glory and we hear the stories of how God worked in their lives. And as we just celebrated in baptism this morning, we heard the story of four and two more at first service of God drawing them out of sin and into relationship with him. God has always been faithful in your life and throughout church history. And because of that, we can have confidence that no matter what life throws our way, even if we're never fully delivered from it this side of heaven, he is with us. He's with us even and especially in that difficulty. The God of the universe is faithful to you even when you struggle and when you stumble and when you fall. What a comforting reality that is. Second, God uses the humble. David showed up that day in the Valley of Elah to check on and see how his brothers were doing and to bring the army some food. And then this little shepherd boy, right, probably a teenager, ended up slaying a giant that day. A giant that the whole army of Israel was too afraid to take on in spite of the promise of riches, no taxes, and the king's daughter. Why? Well, how did... How did David do it? Well, because in his humility, David fully trusted God and God met him in that place and he used him to defend his name. David knew that he couldn't do it on his own, right? David, as we heard, uh, killed lions and bears basically with his bare hands, but he doesn't even fully flex that for King Saul. Instead, he uses those things to point back to what God had done in his life. As we saw in verse 37, he said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me again. Everything he did, everything that he'd accomplished in those fields, he knew was because of the protecting arm of the Lord. And God honored him in his humility. Does this mean that everything we set out to do will, we will accomplish if we have a humble attitude about it? Of course not. Of course not, right? But it does mean that here and throughout Scripture, God primarily uses the humble. So take a cue from David in this story and recognize the hand of God providing and protecting and empowering and caring in your life and humble yourself before him, before your father in heaven and see how he might use your life for the sake of his name. Maybe in your humility, God will call you to do great and public things like David did, delivering his people from a military threat. Maybe he'll call you to suffer for his sake as martyrs have done throughout the ages. And maybe he'll call, your, call you to humble yourself and live a simple life here in Wisconsin Rapids following after Jesus. 
Maybe he'll transform you and help you to see, as Dr. Kirkpatrick talked about last week, that your friendships and your relationships with your neighbors and your role as a stay-at-home parent and your marriage and your workplace and, as Rene Padilla said, every human need, he'll help you see those things as a mission field and an opportunity to point others to him. Not every humble person will be used for events that will be remembered in the pages of books. But every Christian, every Christian who humbly walks with Jesus will be used by God in ways that make ripples in eternity. Third, and most importantly, when we think of David and Goliath, we should think of Jesus. David saw a problem right in front of him, didn't he? His God was being mocked and defied and his people were helpless to do anything about it. And so he stepped in and he handled the situation, not with sword and spear, but with the lowly tools of a shepherd. God too saw a problem before him, a problem that caused the height of his creation, people, his most beloved possession to break and decay and be separated from him. And so, because of his great love for people, God sent his son to fight against a different giant, a giant called sin and Satan and death. John 3.16 says it like this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan, like David, defeated Goliath. Not with military might and swords and spears, but with the tools of a gentle shepherd, one willing to lay down his very life for his flock. You're, you remember that Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He became sin for us and went to the cross and bore the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf. He died, and on the third day, he rose in glorious victory over death and shame and sin and pain and suffering, so that in this life and in the next, we can experience freedom from the power and penalty of sin. And we have a blessed hope to look forward to, right? Eternity with our Father in heaven, beholding his glory. So in 1 Samuel 17, David is the hero who slays Goliath. And David is held up as Israel's greatest king. He was the best of them. He was the best of them, of all the kings. But even David, later in life, failed in some miserable ways. And so, in the broader context of Scripture, the story of David and Goliath is meant to point forward to Jesus Christ, the true king who would sit on the throne of David and reign forever, perfectly. It's meant to point forward to the one who would secure victory for his people, not from a military threat, but from death itself. David was the hero that God used to deliver his people from the Philistines and Goliath. But there is a greater hero, and Jesus is that greater hero. When we think about David, we have to think about Jesus, because Jesus, not Chris, is the greater David. You and I are the scared Israelites with, with this big giant enemy standing before us and no way to conquer it on our own. We can't muster up in ourselves enough of anything to deal one bit with our own sin. But the good news is, we don't have to. When we look at the story of David and Goliath and we recognize that we're not the hero, the pressure is all gone. 
The pressure is all gone. If we look at ourselves as David and our problems as Goliath, there's so much pressure on us, right? Pressure to muster up enough belief or enough courage or enough strength or enough us to conquer these problems. But we all know we can't. We can't, right? We can't quit, swin- we can't quit sinning on our own. We can't quit being afraid on our own. We can't quit doubting on our own. But when the story instead puts Jesus at its center, and is about what our true king did for us, and we can just sit back and worship him. There's nothing left for us to do, only a king for us to worship and follow because of what he's already done. So, what would I tell my kids and you about David and Goliath? First, God is faithful. Second, God uses the humble. And third, David, at his best, points us to a better king, a better conqueror, a better savior, our King Jesus. Our King, who knew no sin, but became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our King, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down where he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a better king, a better savior, one who dealt with sin in the past and who deals with sin today, one who loved you on that cross and loves you and sits with you in your struggles today, one who longs that every man, woman, and child would turn to him and trust in him and be reunited with him in eternity one day. So kids, adults, Christians, non-Christians, when you think about the story of David and Goliath, think about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for these classic Old Testament stories that are ingrained into us from the time we were young and that you've used in pop culture to be uh, always present. Lord, we thank you for the reminder from David and Goliath, uh, that you use the humble, that you've been faithful to us in the past and you'll continue to do so, Lord. And most importantly, we thank you for the reminder of Jesus who defeated not a giant, a physical giant, Lord, but death and sin itself. Lord, because of what he accomplished on the cross, we can be free. We're so grateful and we sit in awe of your presence now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.